welcome back to another edition of the Mintcast, the podcast from Mint Press News. My name's Alan McLeod. I'm senior staff writer and podcast producer here at Mint Press News. This show is made possible by supporters like you as we face shadow banning on many platforms and the crackdown on independent anti-war watchdog journalism intensifies. We ask you that you support us by helping with our yearly funding drive on Indiegogo. Things have started pretty well, but we still need your help to survive and thrive. Now, one of the key incidents of the Russia-Ukraine war, which many have argued is a wider proxy war involving Europe, NATO, and the United States, is the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline carrying gas from Russia to Europe. While American officials and Western media pundits constantly point the finger towards Russia, increasing evidence points to Western involvement, in fact. My guest today is a writer and media critic who, earlier this month, briefed the United Nations Security Council on the attack. Bryce Green's work can be read at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, Salon, Substack, and a host of other outlets. Welcome to the show, Bryce. Thanks for having me on, Alan. How are you doing today? Are you all right? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. Pretty well. Uh, Better that I'm uh, speaking to you, though. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So while Russia might be fairly accused of all sorts of uh, nefarious actions during this war, when you spoke to the United Nations recently, you suggested that the American position that Putin ordered this attack is potentially flawed. Why do you say that? Right. And uh, this isn't just the position of the American government. It's also the position of a lot of figures in the American media, you know, the, the people who shape opinions, who uh you know cultivate audiences and uh make their make their opinions known around the world um the problem with this point of view is that it doesn't really hold up uh when you analyze the motives of the people involved uh, the countries involved um even western press was pretty quick to say that there is no readily available reason as to why russia would blow up its own its own pipeline after it spent billions of dollars to get this done, had undergone a lot of political turmoil to to get it done, uh, along with Germany. And the idea that Russia would blow it up for any reason really flies in the face of logic. But pretty quickly, they settled on a, a vague motive, this idea that Russia blew up the pipeline in order to intimidate the West, in order to show the West that their infrastructure is still vulnerable. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense because, I mean, even if that was a goal, of Russia, uh, blowing up their pipeline seems far too high of a cost for that narrow goal of simply intimidating the West. And so I didn't find these uh, accounts credible uh, as to why Russia would blow up its own pipeline. Um, And even investigators, you know, we're still seeing stories about, oh, we saw some Russian ships uh, in the vicinity of the pipeline. We saw some Russian ships in the Baltics around the time that uh, the pipeline exploded. Uh, but I mean, even even the Swedish investigator, the the lead Swedish investigator, uh, said that he doesn't think it's Russia, and he never thought it was Russia because it's completely illogical. And if these are the people who are investigating it, uh, well, then that really does not lend credence to the idea that Russia did it. Uh, I think we can pretty much dismiss that possibility. And the other major problem with Russia being fingered as the as the sole culprit was that it ignores. Uh, the people who uh, had the most, uh, the most reason to want the pipeline destroyed, the most uh, vocal opposition to the pipeline. It ignores that the U.S. and Ukraine and a lot of the West had been vociferously opposing the pipeline for years. Yeah, and I guess the kind of reaction to who was the culprit, this collective shrug kind of suggests something as well. I feel like uh, if they were confident that it was their official enemy, who is behind this, it probably would have been a story that dragged on for much longer, uh, rather than just being kind of like forgotten about so quickly. Yeah, exactly. And you would think that if there were any evidence of it, we'd have known it by now. Um, And we now know, and I can talk about this later, that the U.S. has that whole area wired up with with sensors that can tell which uh, ships are going where and uh, could pinpoint exactly which ships are doing what and who they belong to. If there was any evidence of Russian involvement, uh, it's 
it seems pretty obvious that the U.S. would have made some of that evidence available to bolster their case and to uh, deflect the criticism that's coming its way for its own obvious motives in attacking the pipeline. But we don't see that. Well, sure. So I'm going to play a clip from your briefing to the UN Security Council where you talk about U.S. and NATO strategy. It has long been a U.S. and NATO strategy to prevent the integration between Western Europe and Russia. This was clear in the early post-war days. Uh, NATO's first secretary general, Lord Hastings Ismay, made it clear that NATO's role as an organization was to, and I quote, to keep the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans down. That hasn't really changed over the last 80 years. So keeping the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. Can you explain why uh, you said that at the UN Security Council? What do you think uh, NATO's role has been? You can sketch a lot of NATO's uh, policy. Uh, you can understand it a lot better when you understand what its origins were. And I think that quote from uh, uh, Ismay is pretty instructive about what the actual goal of NATO is. Um, it's about expanding the U.S. influence in Europe and making sure that Russian influence uh, doesn't uh, doesn't usurp U.S.'s influence. But it's also uh, the last part, the keeping the Germans down. It's also designed to prevent there from being an independent force in the Western world that could sort of go against the U.S. dictates. Uh, I mean, uh, if you look at a map, it's pretty clear that Russia and Germany, they're pretty close together and it's only natural that they would integrate. Uh, but if they did that, that would endanger the U.S. hold on Western Europe. Um, it would create a, a Eurasian bloc that could potentially challenge the the American-led bloc. So when we talk about this pipeline, I mean, this pipeline was a major uh, project to integrate Europe and uh uh, and Russia to integrate the German and Russian economies. And for the reasons that were that are pretty clear, uh, the U.S. didn't want this to go forward. They wanted to be uh, they wanted Europe and Russia to be hostile to each other. They ever since the end of the Cold War, there was a policy of isolating Russia, of keeping it on the periphery, uh, to use the words of, I think, George Bush. Um, and even when Russia asked to join NATO, they were rejected. And so Russia has been really a sort of sort of a punching bag for America and keeping Europe integrated into the Western led economic system and away from any sort of international system is a key reason that the U.S. would have been opposed to this pipeline. And this really sets the stage for, uh, you know, the statements from uh, Biden and Newland and others about why they oppose this pipeline. Yeah, let me play them for everyone right now. There's two clips coming up, one of Victoria Newland talking about why she opposes uh, the Nord Stream pipeline, and also from President Biden as well. Both of these were before the attack on Nord Stream. Um, with regard to Nord Stream 2, uh, we continue to have uh, very strong and clear conversations uh, with our German allies. And I want to be clear with you today. If Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. Let me answer the first question first. If Germany, if, uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there, will be, uh, we, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. What, do, what? How will you? How will you do that? Exactly, since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control. We will. Uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. All right. So we've heard from Victoria Newland, top uh, official at the State Department, and also President Biden himself. Um, this begs the question, why is Nord Stream so important to the U.S. government? Uh, why does it seem to occupy the American imagination so much? All right. Even after the first Nord Stream was completed in 2011, uh, the Germans were pretty eager to embark on another project to get cheap Russian natural gas into the German manufacturing sector. Uh, and since Nord Stream 1, uh, Germany has in, uh, enjoyed a lot of success in their manufacturing sector. They're 
you know, they've gone from a divided country to one of Europe's major powerhouses. Um, but after the after the Nord Stream 2 was announced, there was a lot of difficulty in getting this approved by the U.S. I mean, the U.S. opposed this pipeline through three administrations. During the Biden administration, they actually started, uh, well, during the Trump administration, I'm sorry, they started sanctioning companies who were working on the pipeline. During the Biden administration, uh, our current Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, during his confirmation hearings, actually said explicitly that he would do everything he could to prevent uh, this pipeline from getting completed. Now, uh, American officials often use the term uh, energy security uh, and making sure that Russia can't use its energy as a weapon against Europe. Uh, and that's the language they use to justify their opposition to the pipeline. Uh, but if we go back to the longstanding uh, tradition of the U.S. and NATO in Europe, and we go back to that statement from Lord Hastings this May, uh, well, then we see that they don't really care about whether or not it, it's being weaponized. They care about whether or not uh, this integration between Europe and Germany represents a separate power block that the U.S. can't control. If the U.S. is able to dictate whether or not Germany can get cheap natural gas from Germany, well, that indicates that the U.S. is, in, to some degree, sovereign over the German economy, over the German state. If Germany is able to forge its own path, even against the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Uh, desires, well, then that demonstrates a significant, uh, you know, diminution of American power, which you know can't stand uh, among these people. And so, I think the statements from Victoria Nuland and Joe Biden indicate that they uh, had every intention of utilizing this Ukrainian crisis, which, of course, uh, they helped cause, they helped uh, exacerbate. They're using this crisis in order to achieve a geopolitical outcome um, and achieve an economic outcome in which U.S. natural gas would be flowing to Germany instead of Russian natural gas. Now, these statements don't necessarily mean that they had every intention of blowing it up. Um, you know, Seymour Hirsch would disagree. His sources have a different take on this. But uh, it clearly shows that the U.S. would have benefited from these pipelines ending permanently and that the U.S. had every desire to see these pipelines ended permanently. And so for these reasons, I think those statements are uh, extremely, extremely important. In addition to statements afterwards, I mean, uh, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, he called the explosion of the pipeline a tremendous opportunity. Uh, that's his quote. Um, and uh, Victoria Newland said something similar, indicating that they both knew that this attack on the pipeline uh, was good for American interests. And that, again, should cast suspicion on them for being behind this attack. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are well aware of the West's role in kind of keeping regions of the world such as Africa or Asia or Latin America down. But sometimes uh, the U.S. role in Europe is a little bit harder to see. But, you know, over the last winter, perhaps it's become a little bit clearer whereby European countries are seem to be really cutting their nose off despite their face in terms of not trading with Russia, especially for fuel, whereby we have had huge numbers of people in Europe uh, going cold in the winter and not being able to afford to heat their homes, uh, paying through the nose for uh, high energy prices, which could and should really be coming from the East, but uh, really aren't anymore. And it seems that this kind of position whereby even before uh, Russia invaded, there was a lot of talk from European leaders like uh, uh, Schultz of Germany or um, Macron of France, who were, they were kind of making these feelers towards Russia saying, you know, we don't have to do this. We can maybe find a third position, et cetera. We, don't, we have to navigate between the US and Russia. But ultimately, after Russia invaded, that kind of went away. And now there's this one voice coming from Europe. And it does feel like uh, the EU, sometimes it does feel like it's a bit of a subordinate power towards the United States. All right. Uh, th this same situation of trying to get Europe on the, uh, you know, the American Cold War bandwagon, uh, the same thing is carrying out, uh, being carried out with China, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Emmanuel Macron recently made statements about how the European Union didn't, some of them actually didn't want to be dragged into America's next war about how if they continued on the way they were, uh, then France would be effectively a vassal state of uh, the United States, which is untenable for them. But 
I mean, the U.S. continues to drag and pull Europe in, a, in that direction. And given its outsized economic and political role in the world, uh, the European states have a great difficulty combating that or mustering support within their own parliaments and their own populations uh, to go against the U.S.-led consensus. And we've seen uh, this meddling in Europe uh, over, uh, well, pretty much since the end of World War II. I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners and viewers are aware of the Operation Gladio and the stay-behind networks that were used to influence the European pol policy and politics throughout the uh, entire Cold War. These stay-behind units, they would they were formed ostensibly to protect against a Soviet invasion of Western Europe. Uh, but once that invasion never came, these groups, these paramilitaries, they still had, you know, training and connections with intelligence and arms caches all around Europe. And so uh, with assistance from U.S. intelligence services, they began carrying out uh, false flag terrorist attacks, blaming it on the left, um, which would then shift the policy of Europe to the right. Uh, nowhere was this more emblematic than in Italy during the, their years of lead as part of what was called a strategy of tension uh, designed to... Uh, uh, again, scare the population into uh, embracing more authoritarian and far-right politicians. And, you know, they, it manifested with the, you know, Piazza Fontana bombing, the Bologna railway station, the uh, death of Aldo Moro. And a lot of this was, you know, pretty much uh, covered and uh, documented well within the Italian parliament. But it doesn't seem to resonate with audiences today. I mean, there was a brief period in the 1990s where this stuff was talked about, where this significant de degree of, uh, you know, parapolitical influence was talked about, uh, but it's really disappeared from the public consciousness. But I think the the fact that Europe is so subordinate to America is a result of that process and uh, processes that continue on to this day. Most definitely. And uh, I also want to talk about the media today, because I think they are very important in constructing people's beliefs and helping to frame certain issues. In an article for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, you analyze the media coverage of the Nord Stream attack and describe the US press as enforcing a, quote, intellectual no-fly zone over Nord Stream. What did you mean by that? What I meant by that was uh, that the media seemed almost completely incapable of examining the facts in an objective and dispassionate manner. I mean, go back to the allegations against Russia. Remember, they were talking about how, well, the, the, even the New York Times and Washington Post were like, well, there is no good reason for Russia to have done this. Um, we don't know. We can only speculate. Uh, but they still ended up fingering Russia as the primary culprit because it seemed like there was an intellectual no-fly zone about entertaining the other obvious suspects. Um, the uh, the fact that they dismissed all, all of these comments from Victoria Nuland and Joe Biden and others about how much they wanted to end the pipeline one way or another. Uh, Joe Biden, he said, I, I promise you uh, the fact that those statements, the only time those were mentioned in the coverage about the pipeline in the in the United States, the only time they were mentioned was to dismiss them because they won't, quote unquote, smoking guns. And that they only fuel, quote unquote, conspiracy theories. Uh, and, you know, the term conspiracy theory is one that came up a lot, but it's completely a, a loaded term. It's not really a term that's descriptive. It's more of a pejorative. It's designed to undercut any serious uh, investigation or contemplation about the role that our government might have in some of the bad things that happen around the world. You know, it's only called a conspiracy theory when people are suggesting that the U.S. government was behind it. Um, it's not a conspiracy theory if they suggest that Russia blew its own pipeline just to intimidate the West in some vague way. But it is a conspiracy theory to say that the U.S. acted in its long-stated and long-standing geopolitical interests to carry out an act of terror, which, you know, they have done in the past. Uh, and so this was the sort of intellectual no-fly zone I was talking about. Uh, the only person in the Western media uh, who really took this seriously um, was Tucker Carlson. Uh, the, at the time, he was the Fox News host, the most popular news host in America. 
And that should really give people pause, given that Tucker Carlson is, you know, an openly uh, racist and a very harmful individual when it comes to American political discourse. Uh, Alan, you have a great article uh, on on Tucker Carlson and, and his history with the U.S. intelligence agencies. Um, uh, but the fact that he was the only one taking this seriously is it, an indictment of the entire American media ecosystem. If we're not able to cover uh, such obvious things like the Nord Stream pipeline, such obvious questions about who would benefit who had the capability and who had the opportunity, if we're unable to confront obvious questions like that, well, then there's very little hope for when, uh, you know, serious issues happen, when we need a, a, an, a, a free press to, to tell us what's happening, to combat power. Uh, if we're unable to do that, then it spells, uh, well, you know, as the Washington Post is very fond of saying, uh, democracy dies in darkness. <laughs> Yeah, that article you're talking about, I think it's called Tucker Carlson, the elite pedigree of a brilliant cosplaying populist. And I basically went through his history, his his father's history of being a senior uh, Reagan appointee, of being in control of the government controlled propaganda network, which uh, which encompasses things like Voice of America and Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and how Tucker uh, went down to the Nicaragua to join in the Contra War, which was the CIA uh, backed war or CIA organized war against the leftist guerrillas and how Tucker tried to join the CIA and then how Tucker played defense for the CIA throughout the 90s and then cheerled for the Iraq war, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, he's often called a conspiracy theorist, but one of these enforcements and uh, another person called a conspiracy theorist in recent times is somebody I think has got a lot more credibility, and that is the legendary investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch. Um, in February, he produced a bombshell report claiming that the U.S. Navy uh, traveled to the Baltic and attached C-4 explosive charges to the pipeline, and that it was actually President Biden himself who ordered the pipeline's destruction. Now, <clears throat> according to Hirsch, all understood the stakes and the gravity of what they were doing and acknowledged that if they were caught, this would be seen as a flagrant act of war uh, against their allies, not even just against their enemies, because, of course, this pipeline supplied Europe with gas. It's not just uh, that it was uh, Russian gas going through there, but it was actually benefiting the people of Europe. Uh, I wrote about this uh, for Mint Press News a while back. It's in an article called Media Ignore Seymour Hersh Bombshell Report of US Destroying Nord Stream 2. And what I found was that uh, analyzing the 20 largest and most influential publications in the United States, I only found four mentions of Seymour Hersh's report uh, across those places. One of them was from Tucker Carlson. He did a, a segment on it. Uh, there was a 166-word mini-report in Bloomberg. There was a pretty decent 600-word roundup in the New York Post. Uh, there, but there was also, finally, a Business Insider article which attacked Hersh as a discredited journalist who has given a gift to Putin. And so all the other ones in the week after Hersh's bombshell, the New York Times, ABC, uh, CNN, etc., they just ignored the story altogether. And it really is remarkable, firstly, because of who Hersh is, given his track record, and secondly, because of how much traction this got in the international media, where this became a, a huge story. Uh, I did want to ask you, though, uh, what did you make, because I'm sure you've read it, what did you make of Hersh's allegation? Do you think some of them are credible? When I initially saw the story, I was like, well, well, now we have the answer. Uh, this is before even reading it. Uh, I was talking with people and I was saying that you know, eventually someone's going to have to come out and say what happened. People know about this and we know that people were, uh, you know, discontent with the Biden administration's policy. And so it was bound to leak eventually. And then Seymour Hersh's story came out. And, well, it confirmed a lot of what I uh, previously suspected. Uh, about uh, about the the U.S. role in the pipeline explosion um, and gave a lot of interesting details that uh, give a lot of insight to other aspects of this war. Uh, for example, it, uh, it implicated Norway in the attacks. Um, it implicated the ball tops exercises in June of 2022 as a staging ground for the uh, for the the bomb laying. And I think one of the most interesting revelations was that uh, the planning for the pipeline explosion began 
in December of 2021 or earlier, uh, which if you if you're you know looking at a calendar, that's three months before uh, the Russian invasion actually happened. So if this is true, well, that casts the Biden administration's refusal to negotiate with the with Putin and the rejection of peace terms even after the war started. It puts those actions in a new light. They are already bloodthirsty to begin with, but uh, now we have an economic motive to that. But again, I qualify this by saying if it's true, uh, because there was a lot of pushback from a lot of different communities about whether or not Hirsch was correct. Um, there were some in the mainstream press who said that, well, since Hirsch once reported that you know some of the Syrian chemical weapons attacks weren't a slam dunk, as some were saying. Well, then he's a conspiracy theorist and he shouldn't be, uh, you know, paid any attention to. There were others that criticized his uh, uh, decision to publish this on Substack. Um, they said that, well, since New York Times didn't want to publish it or since New York uh, Magazine or The New Yorker or wherever he used to publish didn't want to publish this. Uh, well, then we shouldn't take it seriously. Um, and then there were others who looked at some of the open source data. Uh, for some of the vessels um, that were that Seymour Hersh alleged were in use during these uh, during this attack. Uh, and they found that, well, some of the open source data doesn't line up with some of the vessels that Seymour Hersh was talking about. Now, Hersh has defended himself against these allegations. Um, and I think pretty well, you know, the idea that uh, The New York Times didn't want to publish it shouldn't really uh, reflect poorly on Hersh, but rather reflect poorly on The New York Times. Uh, I mean, the New York Times is supposed to be the the paper of record, you know, the the watchdog against power. But they didn't even want to report credible allegations from one of their former star reporters uh, about this attack. And the New York Times was one of those places that were pushing the Russia did it. Of course, obviously, who would think otherwise line <laughs> on this pipeline explosion um, and the idea that he uh you know, had gotten things wrong or incorrect before. Well, you know, I've had problems with Hirsch's previous reporting uh, in the past. Uh, the main problem that people have with it is that he presents a line or reporting that's different from what official sources say on the record. Um, and, you know, some of his reporting on Syria has been uh, widely corroborated his reporting on bin Laden has also been somewhat corroborated, though I haven't looked into that in uh, enough detail to give you a clear answer. Um, but the fact is that sometimes reporters get things wrong. Sometimes uh, reporters uh, will have sources that get things wrong. And with Seymour Hirsch, a lot of his sources are in the intelligence community and in the in the the covert world. And, you know, even they due to compartmentalization and the nature of these intelligence agencies in general. Even they might not be fully aware of what is actually happening. And so, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there were some details that were wrong. Um, but the biggest challenge to Seymour Hersh's story comes from the more recent spate of allegations that blame Ukraine for the attacks, that blame uh, a pro-Ukrainian group for the attacks. Uh, the, these reports are based on both the Discord leaks and uh, other sources from uh, around the world. Uh, and we have a sort of picture about how about how things came about. Um, right now, it seems to be that Western press and Western officials agree that Dutch intelligence uh, caught wind of a plot to blow up the pipeline. And then they informed the U.S., who then informed the Germans and warned them about a pro-Ukrainian group that might blow up the pipeline. Um, now, this has a lot of corroboration, but uh, Seymour Hirsch, for his part, calls this story a deliberate uh, misinformation, a deliberate distraction uh, to throw Ukraine under the bus and, and get eyes off of the U.S. Um, and, uh, you know, there is some truth to these Ukrainian allegations. For example, we do know that Ukraine and Poland, uh, who was also alleged to be part of this uh uh, this pro-Ukrainian group outfit, we do know that they also, much like the U.S., had opposed the pipeline for years and years. Um, the Ukrainian and Polish foreign minister, they once published an article together uh, talking about how this pipeline you know, needs to go and how it's damaged the West enough. 
Um, we also learned that the U.S. was training Ukraine on some of these uh, uh, these underwater exercises that would have had to have been done in the attack against the pipeline. Uh, and we also, you know, have the these reports coming out of the you, the German investigation, which are pointing at this boat called the Andromeda as one of the central uh, factors in the attack. Um, now, there are other there are other elements uh, which you know corroborate Seymour Hersh's story. For example, a uh, a naval coordinator during the Baltops exercises says that he saw, uh, you know, uh, American divers being met with uh, by plain clothes, uh, what he assumed to be intelligence officers, and then they went off and did something for hours that had nothing to do with the actual Baltops exercises. Um, and then there's a uh, there's all sorts of corroboration, but you know we can get bogged down with the with these minute details, which are important, and I will continue to research them and talk about them. But I think we've lost the forest through the trees on this front, right? Uh, even if Ukraine was involved, uh, that means that the U.S. almost certainly knew about it and kept quiet in the aftermath, which. You know, uh, I don't know how the legal system works over there in the UK, but in the US, if someone keeps quiet about a murder and they knows they know that it happened, well, you know, they're uh, they're an accomplice. They are going to be charged with the same crime. And so this idea that the US did it and uh, Ukraine did it are, you know, mutually exclusive and we should not talk about this until we figure out exactly what happened. Well, you know, I think it's pretty preposterous. Um, whether or not Ukraine or the U.S. divers actually placed the charges, the U.S. almost certainly knew about the uh, the attacks as soon as they happened. Um, they almost certainly knew who did it and uh, which ships were involved. Now, one of the best reports uh, advocating the Ukraine did it side comes from James Bamford, who published in The Nation uh, a few months ago. And I think the most important revelation he gave there was about the U.S., they, ha uh, they have a massive array of underwater acoustic sensors that are able to fingerprint the ship, any ship in the Baltics, based on its engine sound. And so that even if a ship turns its transponder off and is, uh, you know, invisible to satellites, then these acoustic sensors, which are fed to the U.S. Navy, these acoustic sensors would almost certainly be able to pick up uh, the signature of the ship. And so this idea that the U.S. has no idea what happened uh, is almost completely false unless, you know, uh, an act of God happened to prevent this constant surveillance from going on on the, the day that the, the Nord Stream pipeline exploded. Um, but this this idea that the U.S. didn't know is preposterous. And so if Ukraine did it, the U.S. knew and covered it up. If the U.S. did it, well, then the U.S. did it. In any case, they're complicit in this act of terrorism that really harmed the German economy and that continues to harm the German economy uh, and that, you know, has sown distrust among the NATO allies that we claim to care so much about. Yeah, I guess it's important to be critical media literacy advocates here. And one thing you should always do when reading any source is really grill grill them on why they're writing this, who they're writing it for, what are their sources, et cetera, the who, what, when, where, why. And I guess with Hirsch, um, the knock on his story is that it's based on anonymous officials. He's not uh, naming any of them, which means that they could be passing him false information uh, with basically no consequences. Or journalists who are uh, not, um, you know, they're kind of... Um, slightly more in the sort of skullduggery part of the journalism could just be making up quotes and uh, passing them off uh, as a uh, reality. But of course, that's pretty much par for the course nowadays in corporate media. If you look at how many articles in the New York Times are based off of, you know, a senior person at the White House said, or an anonymous defense official said, etc. Those make headline news all the time. So I'm not really sure that the idea that Hirsch is a story that's based entirely on anonymous sources means that it's necessarily uh, completely untrustworthy or completely not newsworthy. Certainly, we should be skeptical of that. But uh, yeah, I think uh, still it's worth uh, investigating. On the other hand, he is a, a story journalist with a huge track record of breaking big stories like the My Lai Massacre. He wrote about 
The CIA spying ring in the 1980s wrote about the bombing of Cambodia in the 1970s, uh, wrote about Abu Ghraib torture scandal in the 2000s. So this is a guy who's certainly got a long track record writing for prestigious publications like the New York Times. And so it really is very surprising to see so many people and so many organizations just not picking this up at all. Yeah, uh, no, you're exactly right. And yeah, the whole uh, uh, knocking on Hirsch for having an anonymous source. Well, I mean, we only have one source on the record who claims to have operational knowledge about what happened to the Nord Stream. And that comes from Seymour Hirsch. And they said that uh, the U.S. did it. Uh, everything else is uh, hearsay. Everything else is assumptions. And even the Ukraine did it story. The fact that we're hearing so much about it is not incompatible with Seymour Hersh's story, especially when he said that it's that the Ukraine did a story is a bit of disinformation to uh, push people away from the U.S. trail. Right. I mean, the Washington Post story um, that said that Ukraine was thinking of new ways and trying to find new ways to attack Russia, um, including blowing up pipelines. Well, that's based on the Discord leaks, and we still haven't seen the original information. We haven't seen the original documents for that yet. The Washington Post has them somewhere, uh, and, you know, they might be accurate. They might not be. But the fact is, we don't have the ability to see that. And the other information is coming from the German investigation, um, which, well, we don't exactly have any direct access to it. These are merely people from that office leaking to the press, telling us things. Uh, we don't know whether they're true or not, and we don't have the means to uh, to corroborate or verify them. And the other evidence indicating uh, uh, the Ukraine did it, uh, it also comes from officials, just leaks from officials saying, OK, well, yeah, we received this warning uh, around this time or we sent information to the U.S. about this. And these are just officials talking to the press and the press repeating what the officials say. Uh, these aren't based on documents or hard evidence or anything like that. But, you know, they're they're all we have. And so we have to operate in this sort of uh, in this holographic state where we're not 100 percent sure what's true. We're not 100 percent sure what's false, what's disinformation, because even if we take everything at face value, someone has to be lying here. Uh, someone has to be deliberately feeding misinformation, be it these investigators from Europe, be it these intelligence agencies, be it whoever Seymour Hersh is talking to. These stories are incompatible with each other. Um, but the fact that we're seeing them all, you know, it could be part of some unified field in which, uh, you know, Seymour Hersh is right. And the uh, and the uh, attacks were or the the idea that Ukraine did it was uh, specifically misinformation to push people off the trail of the U.S. Uh, the fact is, we just we just don't know. But one thing is clear is that the West is complicit and the West knows more than they're telling people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's got to be something going on there. If uh, if the guys who are saying Ukraine did it are correct, then what's all this other information being about that seems to be coming from the same place? So somebody's clearly lying there. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, now, as somebody, it's difficult sometimes to talk about the Ukraine war because you feel like you almost have to take sides, but I really don't want to take sides between these two big powers vying over Ukraine. And I really just want to be on the side of peace a lot of the time. Uh, I would ask you the same question I asked anti-war activist Medea Benjamin last week in uh, last week's edition of the Minkcast. How can this war, do you think, this bloodshed, how can this be put to a stop effectively? You know, there, there are a lot of wars and tragedies around the world in which you look at and, you know, horrible things are happening, but you don't really have a solution for how to end it all. You don't know what the United States can do to make things better. Um, you can just hope for the best. Uh, this is not one of those cases. This is a case where there has been a solution on the table since long before the war even began. Uh, and that solution is to negotiate a settlement in which Ukraine is neutral. This war fundamentally is about uh, the U.S. asserting its right to place missiles, troops and bases on Russia's border in Ukraine. Uh, 
by expanding NATO there. And it's about Russia not wanting to accept that and choosing to use war as a means of uh, enacting its geopolitical policy. Uh, now, if we wanted to avoid war to begin with, the very least thing we'd, we would have done would be to seriously entertain uh, Russian demands and proposals uh, before the war. And the proposals were pretty clear. We can't tolerate Ukraine with, uh, within NATO on our borders. We can't tolerate these missiles that are so close to our border. Uh, we want to talk about seriously rolling that back. But this was unacceptable to the West and continues to be unacceptable to the West. Even after the war started, um, Ukraine actually went to the negotiating table, um, mediated by uh, Turkey and other countries like Israel. Uh, and they came to a pretty, pretty close to a serious agreement where the Russians would stop uh, their in invasion and Ukraine would figure out something to do about Crimea and the Donbass regions. But the, the fundamental was that they would entertain the idea of remaining neutral. And the U.S. response to this was to uh, publicly say that they're not in favor of negotiations. Uh, and the U.K. sent Boris Johnson over to, to scuttle the, uh, the negotiations, to tell Ukraine that the West is not ready for you to negotiate with Putin. And so this has been the state of affairs for the entire war. Uh, you know, China came out with its 12 point peace proposal. Uh, you, Ukraine said uh, that they're in, interested in talking about it. Russia said that they're interested in talking about it. Uh, but, you know, is there someone you forgot to ask? Uh, the United States came out and said that we are not in favor of any ceasefire at this point. Uh, we don't want uh, to legitimize Russia's territorial gains, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but the fact is that they don't care about sovereignty. Any objective look at U.S. foreign policy over the last 20 years, 30 years, you know, since its entire foreign policy, actually. But any objective look at that tells you that they are not concerned uh, about people's sovereignty, about people's lives, about abstract international laws. What they're concerned about is their own interests. And that right now, their interests are about bleeding Russia and ensuring that uh, Ukraine fights Russia to the last Ukrainian. Uh, and that, that was said by Lindsey Graham. Uh, this idea that the goal is to weaken Russia was said explicitly by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, straight out of Raytheon. Um, but all of these, all these incentives, uh, all, all the policy incentives for the U.S. Uh, is telling it to prolong this war. And so, but it's clear all wars end, all wars end in negotiation. The only question is how many more people are going to die before the U.S. accepts this, before the U.S. says that now it's time to go to the negotiating table. Now it's time for Ukraine to go to the negotiating table. Uh, this war won't end until that happens. But a peaceful settlement, again, it'll probably look like uh, a, a lot like uh, what was discussed before the war even started. A neutral Ukraine, some sort of autonomy referendum for uh, the Donbass regions and some sort of uh, agreement with respect to Crimea and whether or not it's going to remain in Russia, which the people of Crimea largely agree on, or whether or not they're going to have some sort of uh, autonomy. So the, the contours of a peace proposal are there, and I don't really expect them to change much. The only thing I expect to change is as the Ukrainian death toll mounts and as the Russian death toll mounts, Russia will demand more and more territory from this new Ukraine that's going to happen. Uh, I don't see, uh, you know, any other way out. It's hard to predict the future, but again, I don't see another way. And talking about the future, the 2024 elections are coming up rapidly somehow. And uh, there is some talk that perhaps uh, Biden might not be quite as secure as uh, he thinks he is. I've seen former President Trump making a lot of noise talking about how he would end the war in Ukraine very quickly. And actually, a lot of uh, right-wingers seem to have stolen the mantle of, the, of being anti-war. And yet, at the same time, Trump will also recently say things like that he would give Ukraine more than they ever got to fight off Russia and calling Zelensky a very honorable man. So I don't know. I mean, what do you think uh, the prospects are for any kind of different U.S. policy if the Republicans get in next year? Uh, it's very difficult to say. Right now, the 
uh, only opposition to this endless escalation, this policy of proxy war comes from the right in America. Uh, Democrats, they vote almost unanimously in favor of these uh, aid packages, in favor of sending more weapons. And uh, but Republicans, you know, they got a few dozen of them that dissent. Um, but, you know, this war is very is waning in popularity in the United States as more and more people are watching their material conditions deteriorate and then watching, you know, tens of billions of dollars go off to Ukraine. Well, they're starting to ask questions about what uh, Joe Biden's priorities really are, about what America's priorities really are. And uh, given this, it's given a lot of space for people to run uh, in opposition to these sorts of policies. Uh, Trump is doing this thing again where he's lying about being anti-war (laughs) <laughs> where he's going to run as an anti-war candidate, but people will probably believe him because no one else is saying these things. No one else is saying that this is a proxy war that should never have happened, that should have happened, or that should have ended with negotiations. No one else is saying that. And so the fact that Donald Trump is you know, giving himself that lane and the fact that everyone else is letting him have it, I mean, it, it does spell trouble for Joe Biden, I think, because people, like I said, they understand their material conditions and they you know, know BS when they see it. And the fact is, you know, say what you will about about Trump, but his track record on foreign policy, uh, you know, it it was better than Obama's. It was better than uh, uh, than Joe Biden's in the sense that he never did get us involved in a new extra war. There's a lot to criticize him about. I mean, he installed a lot of neocons in uh, in his cabinet and he almost started a war with Iran. But on a lot of fronts, it was a lot more reasonable than the maximalist demands that we see from the Biden administration. Uh, and so, but the, the question is, would the policy change should Trump get in the office? Well, uh, first, I, I hope this war will end regardless uh, before 2024. It would be a, a, a horrible disaster if this war were to continue for that much longer. Uh, but, you know, Trump has talked a big game in the past, but you know, on key issues, he's deferred to, you know, his military advisors, the the spooks in his ear, uh, you know, in different sorts of escalations around the world. And so it's hard to take anything he says seriously. It's hard to say that this is what he believes and it's going to be set in stone when he gets in the office. But, you know, one opinion I have had and that I still get a lot of crap for among my leftist friends, I do believe that if Trump were in office, um, during this Ukrainian crisis, during the, the, the Russian buildup, I do believe that he would have tried to make a deal with Putin. Uh, because, you know, for better or for worse, he doesn't really adhere. Trump doesn't adhere to these ideals about European unity and the sanctity of NATO and all these conventional norms that all these, uh, you know, conventional foreign policy thinkers seem to hold so dear. Uh, he doesn't adhere to any of that. I mean, I wouldn't call him you know, particularly smart. But I mean, when there's a deal to be made, there's a deal to be made. And if he's not ideologically encumbered uh, by this pro-NATO baggage that everyone else has, then I think the the chances for him actually making a deal were were and would have been uh, dramatically higher. What that means for the rest of his policy proposals, I don't know. But on this narrow issue, I do think that he would have been uh, better than the, the current administration. All right. So finally, I'd like to play a clip of what you said about the UN Security Council itself. So here comes the clip. To recap, the consensus among Western uh, Western press and Western uh, officials is that the United States or Ukraine was involved in the attack. And if Ukraine was involved in the attack, then it surely had U.S. acquiescence. Now, Everyone here likely knows all of this, uh, but given the U.S. power to veto any motion by the Security Council, it's likely not going to change anytime soon. So what will change that? So what did you mean by that? Can you explain your position there? Why did you say that to the U.N. Security Council? Right. Well, one of the things I knew going into that room is that the people there already have their scripts about what they're going to say. what their position's going to be, what their country believes with respect to the pipeline explosion. And I knew that there wasn't going to be any serious reaction to what I had to say there. You know, I could have come in there with video evidence 
of Joe Biden saying, I want to blow up the pipeline and here's how we're going to do it. I could have came in there with that. I don't think that would have changed their minds because that's just not what the U.N. is. It's not really a body where people go to seriously deliberate and weigh the evidence and then come out with a different opinion. No, I mean, they're there for, you know, the, the pageantry of international institutions to give their own policies, you know, the air of legitimacy. That goes for Russia, that goes for China, that goes for the U.S., that goes for every country there. And so what I wanted to, yeah, and and everyone in that room is well aware that the West blew up the pipeline and is well aware that it was either the U.S. or it was the Ukraine with the U.S. supporting them. Everyone in that room knows, but uh, I was still going to make a speech. So who was I talking to? Uh, I I said, what will change this idea that the U.N. is going to be a dead end? Well, the only way that that's going to change is if the domestic populations of these countries, the U.S. in particular, put pressure on the government to make them change their behavior. And the biggest way to to get them to change their behavior is through the national media. These media organizations have enormous power and influence and authority with both the public and the political class. They could be using that to ask Joe Biden questions like, hey, you have this array of international or uh, underwater acoustic sensors. Why haven't we had any data from that? Why haven't you talked about it? Why hasn't anyone else asked about it? They could be asking him that every single day, but they choose not to. And so mine was an appeal to them and any other media minded person or any other political person that if you want change, it's not going to happen because someone gave a nice speech in a in a nice room full of prestigious individuals. It's going to happen because the political calculations that these countries make will change. And the only way to change their political calculus is to create a force from the the ground up, the bottom up, that can push our country in a certain direction. Absolutely, completely agree. Bryce Green, writer, activist, media critic, you said it all. Where can people follow your work? Um, You can follow me on Twitter at the Green BJ. Uh, you can follow my newly launched Substack. I think it's brycegreen.substack.com. Um, there I have my remarks that uh, uh, from the UN. It's not you know verbatim transcript because I, I'm, uh, it's difficult to read a script, <laughs> uh, but they are pretty close, and they're what I gave the UN translators uh, for my work. And I added citations and links in there, so anyone interested in anything I say can uh, you know click on the link and go and research it for themselves. Um, I'm planning on publishing a new, longer, updated piece about what we know about the Nord Stream. That's basically going to be an extended version of the remarks I gave, uh, um, along with some of the, the the minute details about what happened. And I also write for fairness and accuracy in, in reporting, uh, you know, uh, a home that we both share, Alan. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're a great magazine that covers how the media omit and manipulate uh, facts to you know serve the agendas of the powerful and the rich and the the foreign policy establishment in america they do essential work and i'm proud to work for them yeah do check out fair.org for more on that not just mint press uh just before we finish i will say i'll give us a quick plug again we are doing our annual funding drive right now we started off reasonably well but we do need uh more supporters like you to keep us going and thriving so if you are in an economic position please do go to our indiegogo fundraiser and give whatever you can thank you very much we'll see you next time